Hey everyone, this is uh, Dave Broadback sitting here. It's August of 2019 and I'm getting ready for the term. Uh, you may be here. It's really hot right now in here, in this room, but you may be listening to this when it's very cold. Isn't the internet amazing? Anyway, this is uh, the lecture you're about to hear is from Psych 4006, the history of psychology for the 2019 fall term. Hope you enjoy it. a long time. Uh, it's founded in the 7th century BC, or BC, I see, I should use BCE and CE, or BC and AD, you should be consistent. Uh, in 476, Rome falls to the barbarians, so-called because they had beards. That's all it means, okay? Um, Rome is sacked and taken by... There's different barbarian tribes. They all basically come from Eastern and Northern Europe. So these are the, you know, your Goths, your Visigoths. It's great that you have Goth. We get that from them. There was, a, there was a tribe called the Vandals. That's who wrecked Rome, the Vandals. We get the term Vandalism and Vandal from a bunch of people who wrecked ancient Rome, which is kind of great. Pretty badass, though, when you show up and say, who are you guys? Oh, we're the Vandals. We're actually called that. So I get out of the way, Romans. Uh, Rome falls in 476, then the barbarians. Uh, Rome, in fact, interestingly, uh, in a way, continues to 1453, I think it is. Fall of Constantinople. That's amazing. Rome was pretty cool. So... And I've talked about Galen, I've talked a lot about Galen, I know, in, in uh, 2606. Galen was a prominent Roman physician. He was actually Greek, but Rome was pretty cool because it was a multicultural society. They didn't really care where you came from as long as you... And they didn't care about your religion as long as you also accepted their religion. So they're like, oh, you want to have religion? Cool. Also, come to our temples. You have to do that. And if you were in, into that, you were fine. You could be a Roman citizen and be Greek, for example, like Caleb. He said the four qualities, cold, warm, dry, and moist. Moist, it's a word many people don't like. Don't know why. Uh, were involved uh, in to be dead, balance those four things within a person to have perfect health. Obviously, this is ridiculous. But I mean, he's working, he doesn't have... You, know, you can't just look stuff up on Google Scholar, right? So it's a little different. Um, so mental disorders were caused by an imbalance of these, of the four humors. The four humors are uh, blood, black bile, yellow bile, and the other one that I can't remember. Uh, so there's the four humors, okay? Somebody look it up. It's going to drive me crazy. Just look up phlegm. Yes. So if you're too phlegmy, maybe you guy you got schizophrenia. I don't know. It's kind of an interesting approach. Again, clearly wrong. But again, this idea of keeping things in balance, we talked about this the other day, is a common theme. And in fact, even today, you will hear lay people say it's a chemical imbalance. Right? That's something you hear people say when they talk about mental disorders. Okay. Push the start button. Yes, I did. Started the term, like I said, I always think I've not started. 
Um, so mental disorders are caused by malice before humorous. He, he talked, he wanted, early on he was talking about something like psychotherapy. Um, talk to people to, to balance out your humors. Talk to a learned person. It's interesting that the Christian church, the Christian church was really good. And the real Catholics and Protestants back then, there was Christians. It was split. Uh, there's also no real organization in a lot of respects. The church down the street might be a little different than your church. You might, the teachings might be a little bit different here than they are there. But the Christian church liked Galen's idea of humors, of balance. So they put that, that actually was brought into Christian dogma. Now, he really liked research in, we wouldn't call it research today, but the idea of observation and just trying to figure things out. So they didn't bring that in. They weren't fond of that. One of the things the early Christian church was big on is unless you're a monk or a priest, you're not allowed to learn things. everything the way it is, and it'll be fine. So they brought a lot of these ideas in, and you see those into, uh, frankly, the idea of the, the four humors is up in the 1800s in medicine. Um, so it had tremendous uh, influence. We would recognize Rome. I said the other day we would recognize ancient Greece. We would also recognize ancient Rome. That's parts of ancient Greece, Athens. We wouldn't recognize Sparta very well. And it's, by the way, Sparta's nothing like that movie 300, okay? It doesn't look like a comic book, first of all, is the first thing. So the ancient Romans, their philosophy focused on the good life, which is not surprising with our sort of notion of how Rome was, very decadent, really everybody killing things and having sex with people and other things. Uh, not so much, actually. Rome, the average Roman... Think about it. ancient Rome was a huge city for the time. It had a million people in it. Nowhere else had a million people. Maybe some places in China, but probably not were that big. Maybe some places in India, probably not. Not quite that big. Rome was like a modern city. Very much like a modern city. So most Roman philosophy focuses on feeling good and not feeling bad. It's a utilitarianism, right? Stoicism, on the other hand, we use the word stoic today, focused on the calm acceptance of one's faith and the removal of oneself from appetitive pursuits, right? So you're not, it's like, this is just the way it is. I'm going to let it go. I'm going to be calm. That's just the way the world works. The Romans were pretty interesting. And like I said, we would recognize ancient Rome in that there were courts of law. Uh, you could hire a lawyer. You would argue before a judge. Roman law is the basis of British common law, which is the basis of our legal system. Um, people, most people lived in apartments. In, in Rome. There was running water. Now, most running water wasn't to people's homes. It was to a public fountain that you go get water. But, and people who were wealthy had flush toilets. People who weren't wealthy didn't, and there were public toilets. Uh, there were public baths, so you didn't bathe in your house, typically. There was no soap. They didn't make soap. They used to bathe with olive oil. So you'd get wet, and then you'd cover yourself with oil, and you'd scrape it off with a, uh, something kind of like a knife that wasn't sharp. It's to remove all the dead skin, basically. And then you go back into the water, wash off. It doesn't sound nice, but people used to complain. There's a great, I took Latin in school, as I've told you many times. And eventually, when you take Latin, you start reading things from ancient Rome because there's only so many things you can read. It's weird to read about today and do like a little dialogue play in front of your class about. What did we do today? Because nobody speaks Latin anymore. So you read things from ancient Rome. And I read a, a, a speech by Cicero to the Roman Senate 
where he's complaining about hearing buildings collapse at night because the, they, there weren't a lot of building codes, I'm just saying. People were out, re there was a town, there were people doing announcements, basically reading the news. It was, it, we would recognize it, the, the slavery would be, we would be a little shocked by, or a little, we'd be shocked by some of the sports, right? It's like MMA, but with swords, <laughs> that would be a little bit much, I think, for most of us. But we would recognize it. So most Roman philosophy, we think of the most common thing we think of the good life kind of philosophy is called Epicureanism. And they emphasize the power of pleasure and pain. And we talk today about Epicurean people. Those are people who are into food. It's another, it's a it's a fancy word for a foodie. So this is the idea of taking pleasure in things and avoiding pain. Uh, Lucretius, which a lot of people mispronounce as Lucretius, who one of the things about Latin, you pronounce every single letter. So it's Lucretius. Uh, approached a number of psychological topics. He was an Epicurean. He argued for the unity of the mind and the body. Wow, that's weird to think of in or a little after Christ is born. That's a long time ago. So he advocated for uh, I, keep mess, I always mess up this word for atomistic materialism. This is the idea that things are made of things. That if you could divide something up enough, now he didn't know that there was periodic table elements, anything like that. But if you could break a piece of wood down, keep cutting it and cutting it and cutting it and cutting it, you get to a point where you couldn't cut it anymore, and that would be one atom of wood, one piece of wood. So it's materialism in that things are made of stuff. There's nothing magic in them. He did allow free will, which is something most people did back then. The idea that there's no free will is a very 20th century, maybe 19th century idea. Lucretius also wrote extensively on sensation, morals, uh, the evolution of social groups, the importance of social groups. Okay? So this sounds actually, we would recognize this. We would recognize if we were hanging out with him uh, in the, the, the forum, which is the, the public square, and listening to him speak, you go, yeah, I got that. Sure, that makes some sense. Like we, th this would not surprise us when he said that there were atoms of wood. You'd go, but sir, but I mean, there's nothing you can, you can't explain. Modern ideas about chemistry to somebody from back then. So you'd, you'd recognize this. That's him there. Like I said, they were so good at making statues, and they couldn't paint with. Like it's just, it's really surprising. Romans were a bit better at painting than the Greeks. One of the things you often see in ancient Roman paintings is some of the, if, if they're portraits, which is what they usually painted, you will see someone holding a stylus. And when they're holding a stylus, that means they can write. It's a way of saying, uh, literate, not illiterate, can write. So you'll often see people wonder, why, why are they always holding pens? Because they're telling everybody, I have an education. One of the ways we know that people have been right-handed in the same proportion as they've always been is you can look back at ancient Roman paintings and see most of the time people are holding the stylus in their right hand, which is very cool. So there he is there. He looks, um, he's got, he's, it's a good look. He's okay. He doesn't look too intense. All right. So skepticism. On the other hand, is Puro, and he says, don't be involved in anything. Don't take a side. Just accept the way the world, the world the way it is. That's him there. That's obviously not a modern drawing of him, or a, a, a contemporary drawing of him, because they couldn't draw. So skepticism actually denies the possibility of knowledge. You can't know anything, which is a kind of postmodern way of looking at the world which I think is ridiculous, I think probably we would all agree, but the ulti ultimate skepticism is if I don't believe anything until I've seen it, then nothing can be true. It actually follows if you believe the first, if you take the first part, it's like, I only accept what I've seen and what I've experienced. If someone else tells me something, right? If someone else tells me something, I, I'm not going to accept it. I have to experience myself, but then I have to be open to the idea, I don't teach you sides, that it could change later. In other words, there's no truth. They said kind of postmodern. So it's untroubled existence. If you don't think there's any truth, 
at all. He just lived day to day, man. You're not going to get disappointed in anyone or anything because there's nothing, because not nothing's true. <laughs> it's a really, I think, a kind of a shitty way to live your life, but you know, I guess it works out for. Nobody's going to talk about me in 2,000 years. We still speak of Puro, so. Okay. So, ancient Rome, like I said, I'm a big fan of ancient Rome. Rome is the decline and the fall of the Roman Empire. Who knows why it happened? Could have been, but it was just too big. Um, you've got something. Uh, you've got a, a state the size of all of Europe. Kind of hard to govern when you don't have modern communication. Right? So who knows why it falls? It's complex. Um, it's gradual. There is a theory out there that the use of lead in their pipes for their drinking water drove everyone a little bit crazy. I don't think I'd buy that, though there was lead in their pipes for their drinking water. People were getting lead poisoned. That's for sure. Basically, Rome's probably just too big for a, for a it could work today, not then. Um, and as I said, the early Christian faith, the early, so early Christianity was, was quite diverse. Um, the church over here, as I said, might be different from the church over here. You go to another town, they'll have a totally different take on different things in, in the Bible, in the Gospels. I didn't really have a Bible yet. Okay. And the Romans didn't like Christians much. And they also didn't like Jews much. And the reason for that is... Like I said, Romans were cool about anybody else's religion as long as you also accepted theirs. So if you said, so the, there, were, there were taxes paid to temples, basically. And the state religion was, you know, Roman gods. So if you go to the temple of Jupiter, which is just the Greek god Zeus, the Romans were great with that. Oh, we'll take all of your gods and rename them. Zeus, he's now called Jupiter. So they show up at a Christian church and say, so you guys are going to come and sacrifice and give some money to the... Nope, because that's a fake religion. And Rome's like, I don't even get that. There's no such thing as a fake religion. All religion's cool. You've got to also believe in ours. Even just fake believing in it. That We're cool with that. Just come by and pay your... Ta no. That's why they didn't like Christians and like Jews. Right. Now, that changes... When, is it Justinian, becomes the emperor and says, I'm Christian. And then suddenly everything's like, oh, cool, okay, so that's fine. And the Roman Empire stops being very religiously libertine, as it were. It starts being rather intolerant. It was, I mean, you've got to understand, this is really tolerant for the time. Rome was a really liberal society for its day. Yes, I know it had slavery and combat to the death. But again, at the time. So Roman Emperor uh, converts to Christianity, and the church gets really powerful. You know the word basilica? What's a basilica? It's a big church, right? Not in Latin, it's a courthouse. When the Roman Empire fell, they took all the basilica, basilica A, which is, okay, basilicas, I'm not going to use Latin, plural. And they converted them from courthouses into churches. So all those great basilicas in, 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 in Europe, in Italy, those were Roman courthouses where people argued and, and sued each other and stuff like that. And then it became, no, it's church now. So here's an idea of how big Rome was. Okay? Look at that. That's a big country. And eventually, it starts to fall, 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 and it gets to the point where it's really just a little tiny bit of the boot in Italy. There's a whole Eastern Empire over here that's also the Roman Empire that becomes what's called Byzantium, or the Eastern Roman Empire. And it lasts until the 1400s, mid 1400s. But they speak Greek, and they're Eastern Orthodox. It's, it's a different, they, they're two states that sort of separate from their own. So it was a big country. You could go anywhere in the ancient world uh, within, you know, Europe and North Africa, and literally just say, I am a Roman citizen. And 
and no one's going to scream. Because if a Roman citizen was ever attacked or robbed or hurt, the wrath of the Roman army would come down on that place. Okay? Pax Romani. So the idea was it's peace through incredible amounts of strength. The Roman army was a, was a thing to behold. It was a professional army. Uh, and the soldiers, they, it wasn't like a two-year stint or three like we think of now when you join the army. You joined up, you, you were in for 25 years. When you left, you got a farm, though. Like your pension was, you've been a soldier from the time you were 15 till the time you're, you know, 40. Here's a farm where you and your family can live. It'll be great. You've got to live through 25 years of being a soldier. And life was not easy for Roman soldiers, though they, they got a, a ration of, of wine and a ration of cheese every day and a, sort of a weird barley porridge they ate. Uh, and then in Northern Europe, they were drinking a lot of beer. So it, when they were off times, they were drunk. So take that with what you will, like, like most people were then. All right. So Rome falls. And then we get what we call the Middle Ages, or the Dark Ages, or the Medieval Period. I don't like Dark Ages, because it sounds like nothing happened. Um, middle is good, because now is now, and then old is then, so it's in the middle. <laughs> I guess that's OK. 400 to 1400, roughly. Um, new forms of architecture start to show up. You get uh, Romanesque uh, architecture with, with curved uh, Arches, you get uh, Gothic architecture, the pointed arches, the flying buttresses, these beautiful, if you've never seen like the, the cathedral at Notre Dame or in Paris, it's incredible. Right? In the West, so that's in Europe, and you know, most of the stuff grows out of European thought, um, medical and psychological inquiry, basic, inquiry basically stops. It just shuts down. Things were basically normal in the Far East and even in the Middle East to a point. But, but things didn't advance very quickly, if at all. So knowledge now is based on theological authority, which is not usually a good way to base a society. You shouldn't say, OK, we're going to base all of our knowledge is based on what do the priests and monks say? Because they're not going to be experts on other things, but that was how society was organized this time. So you can see why things are going to move kind of slowly. This is Tertullian was a monk, and he said we should not use reason. Uh oh, that is funny. Exactly, because what happened? What happened was now. We've got somebody very influential saying, oh, I wouldn't figure things out. <laughs> Don't do that. I think what we should do is just do what we're told. That's like a recipe for stagnation in a society, isn't it, right? So he elevates relevation over reason. Which sounds very much like the words, lyrics from the song, the idiots have taken over by no FX. But anyway... You didn't think there'd be a no FX reference to agent, but there was. Okay, Augustine, you ever heard of him? Saint Augustine. If you're Catholic, he's a saint. If you're not, he's Aurelius Augustine. So he's got he's looking looks at theology of, of his day, so this is the first century, or sorry, first millennium. Um, and he's got Greek, he's looking at Greek and Roman thought, he's looking at Christian ideas and putting them together to understand the world. So there he is. And again, that's a picture from into the Renaissance because of the way perspective works. You just tell that. So that's probably not exactly how he looked. Pretty cool, though. He talks about grief and habit breaking. So the idea that sort of mental illness can just be bad habits. And he talked about how 
kids, like what drives infants? And it's pleasure and pain, and so he gets that, right? So his explanations, or explorations rather, of psychological topics reflected Christian theology at the time. He said that what we should be doing is worrying about inner illumination. Inner illumination is the idea that your thoughts about things come from God. And I'm not saying anything about the existence or lack thereof of God, but it's the notion that everything you think is being directed by God. So you're walking down the street, and what's happening is you saying, oh, look at the tree. And that's because God made you notice the tree God made. Why don't you hear God talking to you? Because God's too complicated. You, can't, you wouldn't understand it, which is really a nice cop-out, an explanation. Right? I mean, it's, it's great. It's like, and we name universities after this guy. Uh, it's amazing to me. So he didn't like curiosity, doubt, and openness. Because if you doubt something, you're doubting your thoughts, which means you're doubting God, and you can't do that because it makes you a heretic, so we'll burn you at the stake. Dude, pretty intense. Pretty intense. Wow. I don't want to hang in with that guy. Okay. Uh, I just did this slide up uh, today, actually. I just made this one up today because it sort of fits. At the time, in the late 800s, there are institutions that are university-ish. Um, there's one called, in Fez, Morocco, called the University of al Karoun. I'm probably really messing up pronunciation. Not everybody calls it a university. It was referred to as a university by some, ancient, uh, by some people in the Middle Ages. It would not really be, it was mostly, it was almost all religious education. So there wasn't the other kind of learning that I'll talk about in a second. So while the institution has been there that long, it probably wasn't a university in uh, 859 when it was founded. The first real university, I think, that has other topics other than religion, that's why I'm saying real, is the University of Bologna, and that's founded in 1088. And the way I call it a real university is why I say that, it has a notion of academic freedom. Professors could teach point, but they wanted to. Not, you couldn't get up there and go, also, there's no God. You'd be hauled away to say. Right? So you can't go against Christian teachings, for example. You could do a point. So I'm saying, I mean, in Oxford and Cambridge claim to be older than this. Again, they were not really universities yet. University comes from a much longer Latin phrase, which means a community of scholars and students, which is what we are. So, medieval education was done in what's called what we would call the liberal arts. And basically, um, you have trivium, which is first you learn these three arts, which are grammar, rhetoric, and dialectic. Grammar is, well, you know what grammar is. Rhetoric is arguing, or sorry is how you can use language to argue and make a point. And dialectic is actually logic. This is elementary school. This is elementary school, by the way, for people of quite privilege. This isn't the guy whose parents make barrels for a living. Like, and there's no chance to go do that unless you have your, uh, of certain means. This isn't state-sponsored. This is run by the church ish, like everything was back then. And then you sort of go to high school, and that's quadrivium. And so now you've mastered these first three, now there's four more. That's arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. So that's the seven liberal arts. Once you've gone through those, what you would often do is you go to a cathedral school. 
Now, cathedral schools are basically the precursors to the modern European university, modern Western university, in that they were teaching philosophy, but also theology. And there was, they were basically all your teachers were, were uh, monks or priests or nuns. This, in fact, is a, so it's, here's more like an ancient, for at the time, this is like, this is around, I think this painting's from like 1200. They're getting a little bit better at perspective, at least they don't look like they're all in the same plane. This artist has actually figured out the point vanishing into the, there. but notice how this person is the same size as this person. The pers they, they're doing it wrong. If perspective was done right, the person at the back there at the chair shouldn't actually be on. Because that person is like 11 feet tall. Like I said, they can't do perspective. This is a, a painting of people, a faculty meeting at the University of Paris. So that's basically a university faculty meeting. Ours look just like that. Yesterday when we had a department meeting, we all got in our robes. Mine's in my office. So what happens is um, some cathedral schools become universities. The Cathedral School of Notre Dame, which actually predates the cathedral, becomes the University of Paris. But most cathedral schools don't. Most cathedral schools just continue to be cathedral schools. There still are cathedral schools. They basically are for religious education. And the cool thing is, this is where, again, it's the academic freedom thing and the idea that they are granted charters to grant degrees by towns or royalty or the church. So like, just like there is an act of the provincial parliament of Ontario for us to grant degrees, the Algoma University Act, these are basically the same kind of idea, except they're, you know, a thousand years older than us. Okay? So that's where European universities come from. Okay. Now let's talk about some celebrities of the day academically. The first one to talk about is a guy named Peter Abillard. French guy, he said faith and reason and doubt were acceptable ways to the truth. Okay, and this is in, he's born in 1079. Okay. Uh, in 1100, he goes to the Notre Dame Cathedral School. It's going to become the University of Paris. And he's studying with a prof there, and he can beat him in an argument, which pissed his prof off. Right? Everybody has an ego, and you don't like getting shown up by one of your students in a class. Um, Abiard was an interesting fellow. Let's just pull up. There's a picture. See, this is more common of the kind of of the time. Look, they don't really. They look like bad cartoons. Abiard and Eloise is, uh, well, okay, here's the story about this guy. This guy gets known in France among intellectual circles as being really smart. He actually literally described himself as the only undefeated philosopher in the world. So he was big on self-promotion. He would show up in a town and say, where's your smartest guy? I want to debate him. What's the topic? You choose the topic. I'll kick his ass. And people would show up, and literally thousands of people, because there was no TV, there was nothing to do. So people go, philosophy argument? How much? So they show, they pay, and there's an argument, and he wins. And he's like, I'm undefeated. I am Peter the Great before there was even a Peter the Great. Okay. And then there's this woman that he hears about. What's her last name? Eloise de Argentuy. Normally, yes, Eloise. And she is probably in her early 20s. She's your guy's age. There are, there's talk that she's 16 or 17 from the time. She's probably not that, that young. It's more likely she's about 20, 21. She's the smartest woman in France. She's getting a name for herself, too. So Peter shows up, and he's like, um, I'd like to meet her. I, I'd like, she's apparently great. And he goes to her uncle, 
And he also is immediately taken by her. Finds her quite attractive. So her uncle, who was his name again? What's the uncle's name? Oh, Fulbert. Kind of a lay church guy. And that's who's taking care of he's taking care of his niece, Eloise. You know what you can do if you want. Why don't you move in with us? And you can teach her. <laughs> and Abigail is like, okay. He's like quietly saying to himself, my plan is working perfectly. Everything's fine. He, they teach together. He teaches her things. And also then later, eventually, you know where this is going. She becomes with child. For she is with child. So she's pregnant. This doesn't go over well. Fulbert says, you know, dude, you have to marry her. He doesn't say, dude, you're 40 and she's 16. Probably 20. Still, he <laughs> says you have to marry her. And, of course, Peter Abiyard's like, that's what really hurt my career, being a philosopher. Because he's a dick. So, eventually, Fulbert says, how about, what about a secret marriage? What about you marry her? But we don't tell anybody. Because as long as the God, as God sees you're married, it's fine. Abigail's like, cool. I can do that. And then everything's fine. And then Abigail sends Eloise away to live in a nunnery, in a convent in northern France. Well, this doesn't, Fulbert is not happy about this. And also, Fulbert's going around, he's kind of saying, you know that really smart guy? So it starts to go around Paris in intellectual circles. And people are like, but she's not living with him. And isn't she like a child, kind of? She has the kid, by the way, who she names uh, Astro, Astrolabe, which is uh, the name of a, she gets the name from a, a, a navigational instrument. And that's really cool. Like, you know you're into science. You say, you know what I'm going to call my kid? Barometer. So pretty neat. No one knows what ever happened to Astrolabe. Poor Astrolabe. Anyway, so this is where it gets interesting. <laughs> so now it gets out that he got her pregnant. They're actually married, but he sent her away to go live with nuns because he probably wants to be with other women because he's a jerk. So um, Fulbert hires some people, some local goons. They break into his place, and they castrate him. That'll teach him. He's not getting anybody else pregnant. He lives through this miraculously, becomes a monk. But still, I mean, he becomes a little more humble, too. <laughs> sort of taught him a little bit of a lesson. It's very Sopranos-like, right? Uh, but he also has this, uh, yeah, I can't, uh, I'm still pretty awesome. But I need to look quiet about it. Eloise was amazing. They wrote letters back and forth. She talked very, in a very modern way about relationships. To the point, in fact, where if you read her things today, you would think this is not, like you, when I call her a feminist, you would think, oh, for the day. Nope. Nope. Marriage is prostitution was one of her letters she wrote to Abigail. She loved Abigail, by the way. She would rather, she said she chose to love him she doesn't. She thinks marriage is a prison and involves prostitution. She would rather go and not have to basically have the transactional agreement of having sex so you can live together and be protected. She would rather do that because she loves somebody. That's a pretty radical way to think in, you know, 1110. So I'm kind of a fan of hers because you read the letters and they're easily available. And if this was France, we would you would know who she was because she's a very important literary figure. You can read them and go, yeah, okay. This kind of reads like a post on Jezebel. Like it, it's it's got like a real feel for like it's real modern modern feminism. Um, so interesting story, and he gets castrated. So Roger Bacon, 
Um, talks a lot about psychological topics as well, nature of human ignorance, and he invented bacon. I, that's not true. Um, but he was important over in England. Talking about the same kinds of things that Abiard was, but without going around saying, also, can I have sex with your daughter? Like, he wasn't throwing that in. Aquinas is another saint. Uh, deeply committed to reconciling faith and reason. So this is interesting. He's like, okay, I don't buy what Augustine said, because we can have faith and reason. In fact, isn't it better to question your faith and have it reaffirmed? So we're talking, we're in the 1200s now. Now, this is where we can now see he was at the University of Paris. Like, he was actually at a university he goes back again, reads Aristotle that he could find. Um, and people used to not want to read Aristotle because he wasn't Christian. It's like, you can't read that, he's not Christian. And it's like, well, Christianity wasn't even a thing yet, and that which was not an argument. But he's like, there's something good here, read it. He talks about sensation and perception. And he talks about using reason because of your, uh, with the things you've observed. It's a, it's a very modern way of looking at the world. And he says the church has nothing to fear from rationalism and empiricism because God is real, so why fear it? And you think questioning God, because eventually evidence will be found. Okay? Pretty cool. So, Occam is at Oxford. And he's there uh, in 1309 is when he starts at Oxford. Um, and he comes up with what we call Occam's Razor, which is right there. That's Occam's Razor. <laughs> so Occam's Razor is the idea, as you know, that the simplest explanation is the best. We have two competing explanations. The simplest explanation is the best. And actually, nature works that way. So it's good. Right? So... These are now centers of learning, places like Oxford and Paris and, and in Cambridge and Bologna. Uh, there's uh, King Charles University in Prague. Uh, uh, there's places all over now. There are centers of learning where, where young people who are, again, pretty privileged young people, are able to go get an education. And there's the play. <laughs> so... It's bubonic plague, which we hear horrible things about it, and if you don't have antibiotics, it just kills you nasty. It's a horrible way to die. On the other hand, if you got the plague, which is exceedingly unlikely, but if you did and you went to the doctor, they'd just give you very powerful antibiotics, and you'd be fine. You have to really be afraid of the, the plague. You always hear about outbreaks of the plague every couple of years in um, developing countries and they get taken care of pretty quickly. This isn't Ebola. This isn't something where you go, well, hopefully it just kills everybody and burns itself out. I mean, the plague today, then it was, then it was bad. There's a wonderful scene, and again, the life of Brian, where they got the cart, and you guys went, bring out your dad. That's holy ground. Oh, it's holy ground, that's what I meant. That's what I meant. And they throw the guy on the, on the pile, and he goes, I'm not quite dead yet. Uh, we'll be in a minute. Yeah, we'll be in a minute. Yeah, it's a great movie. Life, uh, sorry, I keep saying like Brad. No, Holy, Holy Girls, classic. Go away or I'll taunt you a second time. So whose fault? Who? Because everybody, you know, and of course everybody, as usual, blames the Jews. That's, and I mean, I'm being sarcastic, but no, really, people did say, because there's Jews here. Um, Anti-Semitism is a powerful force still, and it was then. So you get all kinds of pogroms against Jews. Uh, they're just getting rounded up and killed. It's horrible. Um, a third of Europe gets killed. But the question that people ask after they finished, you know, raping, pillaging, looting, and killing Jews in the grand tradition of Western Europe is, how did God let this happen? How? Like, every, a third of us are dead. And that's a good question, because you've been told all along, God's looking out for you, it's all good, it's all good, why is everybody dead? 
So people start questioning a little bit. And again, this is not the average person, but this is the educated class. The average person doesn't have time to think about questions like this. So it's not quite this simple. It's not that people say, well, we should have a Renaissance then. But that's probably one of the things that drove the Renaissance. So Renaissance is basically people start reading the Greek and Roman philosophers, especially the Greeks. The Romans were mostly copycats. Um, people start to travel a little bit. Again, these are wealthy people start to travel from town to town. And not just because they're Peter, Peter Abbeyard going around going, you know, I can beat your philosopher, your top philosopher, let's have a debate. He's very arrogant in French, that's why. That's my arrogant French guy. Um, there's more trading, both goods and ideas. So what happens is the city-states that exist in the ancient world, and the medieval world, so mostly there aren't countries. There are cities that govern themselves like countries, Okay. But a lot of the city-states in uh, Central Europe become part of something called the Hanseatic League, so they, they become um, a loose confederation of cities, and they trade with each other. North to south, west to east, pretty cool. Also, we get the rise of, rise of nation-states, so France first, then Spain uh, and England become countries, not just cities. So people will travel. So if, if I am a somewhat learned person, right, and somewhat power, uh, 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 privileged, and I live in France, I can go to another part of France, and I don't have to worry about, they won't let me into this city because I'm not allowed in because I'm not a citizen. I'm a French citizen. I can go there. I'm in, or, you know, it's su subject, I guess, is more the word there. Uh, or I'm, 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 I'm English. So if I want to go to Oxford, and I live in London, I can go to Oxford. I don't have to get special permission to enter the city of Oxford. Right? So people are questioning and speculating about things, and like I said, nation states emerge. And the thing is, when a nation state emerges, you get less influence of the church. Because now you've got kings who are pretty powerful people. And while they certainly believe in God, and they are all Christians, they also don't like the church having a lot of power compared to them. And kings have armies. So they can say, no, I'm not... Uh, you know, you think of like, uh, well, we'll get to them in just a second here. But you think of like ancient Rome. Or what did I say? Uh, uh, you think of uh, uh, Henry VIII. So this printing press also happens, and you can make books. Yeah, mostly what you're printing is Bibles. But it's still books you can print. People can learn to read. Average people. Now we're talking about not just... The privileged, but people who are just a little bit below them in the social strata can learn to read, which was never a thing. Okay? So, that's a picture a still from the TV show The Tudors, which is not really historically accurate, but a great TV show. I put that there because Henry VIII, it's pretty important. The thing about Henry VIII was um, he was actually a very devout Catholic until he wanted to divorce women because they wouldn't. He's a very smart guy, too. We think of him as being this big oaf eating a chicken leg, which he was when he got older and really fat. He was so fat. How fat was he? He was so fat that people had they built uh, a crane-type device to kick him up out of bed. That's fat. Right? That's not like you could lose a few pounds. That like you should lose lots of pounds. When he's young, he writes these... Uh, Defense of Catholicism, which is ironic when later on he starts his own church. Like, no, no, I just, I think I'd like to divorce women whenever I want so I could have sex with more women. Would that be cool? Oh, no, Pope? Fine, my own religion. How's that? That'll learn you. We get the Church of England. So a lot of people give credit to the, for the Renaissance, they say because of the Reformation, because Martin Luther. I don't know about that. I mean, Protestant churches were just as we're right and you're wrong and don't question us as Catholic churches were. So I, a lot of people do, and I'm not a, an historian of that period, but I still find that maybe it was more a, a result of the Renaissance than a cause of it, I think. But now we can question things. Ast astronomers start uh, saying... The sun is the center, not the earth, of the solar system. The geocentric 
worldview of Ptolemy, and Ptolemy was, was, a, was an Egyptian pharaoh, um, who was also a pretty good astronomer and came up with a system to predict where the planets and stars were in the sky, except it was more complicated than what Copernicus, Galileo, etc. came up with, which is that the sun's at the center and there's elliptical orbits. Occam's razor then says, what's the better solution? So the idea here is humans are the center of existence because we're created in God's image, therefore Earth is the center. So when you tell the church that the history of, the church says that the history of the universe is the history of humanity, and you say, well, actually the sun is the center, you're really challenging something. So here we're in the 15th and 16th centuries. So Nicholas Copernicus says it's heliocentric, it's the sun is the center. And Kepler refines Copernicus' system, and he talks about elliptical planetary orbits, and he's actually able to predict where, where things are in the sky better than the Ptolemaic system, which does work, by the way, it's just exceedingly complicated. So Galileo invents the telescope, or refines it, I guess is a better way to think of it, because the idea of how optics work, that's a thing from uh, the Muslim world. And he challenges the assumption of the church, not just that the center of the uh, world of, of, of the solar system is the, not the earth but the sun, but he says things like different things drop at different... The church always said heavier things drop more quickly than light things. And that just is. And it's amazing to think that when someone says, no, I did an experiment, I will show you that's not true. And they say, well, no, 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 you don't question the church. Have the data. Nope. By the way, he entered the University of Paris in 1585. I'm sorry, University of Pisa. He leaves, he doesn't graduate. Galileo never finished his degree. However, he does become a prof at the University of Padua. So, I mean, it's not that he wasn't recognized, but it was like, yeah, I didn't finish. I never finished school. Now, this should not be a role model. Most of us will not become him. So if you, if you screw up and go, well, I'll just become Galileo, that's not going to happen to any of us. But it's kind of cool to think. So it's, we think of it as a conflict of cosmology, right? A conflict of how the universe works, the structure of things. It's not just that. It's a conflict of, a conflict of epistemology because the church says it's revealed. It's known by the church. And Galileo said, I have evidence. And they don't like that very much. They lock him up, uh, torture him quite a bit, and he is forced to recant his views. He certainly doesn't believe that he's wrong. He's seen it with his own eyes, dropping two objects, they fall at the same rate. But he signs the confession because it's better than, you know, what with the torture. So now we're saying that the natural world and forces that are mm, independent of God, perhaps, of God's direct involvement, are things we can think about through experimentation. So science really is getting a kick in the ass here in a good way. So things are predictable, lawful, and quantifiable. By the way, a few years ago, uh, the Pope apologized for the Galileo thing. Like, literally this century. Well, sorry about that. We were wrong. I mean, he knew. But it's actually, a, it's actually kind of a nice move to say, we blew that one. But it's interesting that it took so long. So what about psychology? Um, people aren't horrible, horribly interested in the mind as far as how does the mind work, it's more about how is the mind organized. It's more, more the thing, I think, back then. Um, Petrarch studies the Greek classics. And he's the first humanist, I think you'd say. That's the idea that we study humans. We think about human behavior, human being a human independent of God. That's pretty revolutionary. Machiavelli... We think of Machiavelli as um, a politician, which he was. He was a doge of Venice. 
and Doge is a bad dog in the meme, it's, it's, it's Duke. Um, but he also talked about rejecting mor morality, which if you've read any of Machiavelli's political stuff, shouldn't surprise you, but he's not about morality, it's not about anything like that. What this is about is pleasure and pain and results, function, what happens. Right? It's kind of a modern view. I mean, okay, if you're from Spain, the father of psychology is not Wilhelm Wundt, it's Juan Luis Vives. So a lot of people view him as the father, founder of modern psychology. It's kind of cool looking. Uh, he described emotions objectively, so he tried to talk about them independent of the person. Um, and he talked about them as they were things that were made from the body, the mind and the body being not separate things, necessarily. He talked about associationism in memory and how learning works. So he's not interested in the soul itself or the cognition. Again, this isn't your mortal soul, this is your mind. He's interested in its functions, how it works and what it accomplishes. And he also talked about a broad secular approach to education. He's like, the church shouldn't be doing this. Also, women should be allowed. He's kind of cool. I mean, again, he's progressive. He's not like Eloise, who we would read today and go, that's a feminist. Today, we would read him and go, yeah, he probably doesn't think women are as good as men, pretty clearly, but he still thinks they should have a chance. It was progressive for its time. So Da Vinci, as you can see here, actual picture from the Assassin's Creed game, talking to Ezio, he did some, some important stuff for psychologists. He did uh, this wonderful, he drew these great anatomy drawings. Uh, he would dissect uh, animals and also humans. And he was able to, the word dead, obviously. He was able to get a nice drawing, an accurate anatomy of the visual system, which is something nobody had. There was all this great, these great advancements in the Muslim world about how vision probably works, but there is a, or was, I'm not sure if it's still there, but at the time in the Ottoman Empire, you weren't allowed to cut any humans open after they died. It was just, it was against the religion. So they weren't able to do this, which is a shame because there's some great advances there. So he's able to understand visual perception because he says, look, there's a lens in the eye, just things like that. And he also talked about emotional uh, facial expression, stuff that we talked about today. It's kind of neat to think, you notice this, that these people are just famous for being smart and they're good at everything? It's a different time, right? So it's like, partially that's the education system. You have to learn astronomy, you have to learn about music. But it's also because there wasn't so much knowledge back then. So you don't necessarily, when you, you specialize in being smart, not specialize in one thing necessarily. Like Da Vinci now, he's a pretty special person. But he's, yeah, I'll paint the Mona Lisa today, and tomorrow, I think I'll invent helicopters. Which he did. They didn't fly, nobody was able to make a helicopter for a few hundred years. But he basically invented the helicopters or drugs. And then he's like, oh, I'll do some anatomy drawings today. I'm gonna, okay, gonna do some sculpting today, the next day. Like, imagine what his calendar looked like, his Google calendar. <laughs> you look and go, oh, work on painting, get smile right. Next day, invent helicopter. <laughs> right, like it's, then meet Ezio. Da Vinci was almost certainly gay, by the way. Almost certainly. Uh, let's see, we got Olivia Sabuco talking about physical and psychological consequences of the passions. That's just your basic, your really basic emotions, right? Anger and lust and things like that. Um, she said intellectual processes are important, but she was more interested in the central role of emotions. So see, now see, she's getting a little specialized. And one quite day studied individual differences in aptitude. Oh, now look, this look like, kind of looking like now. It's like, I study emotion and motivation. Oh, I'm, I'm interested in individual differences. 
So we're getting into the like 1600s and 1500s, and people are like, ah, now I'm getting specialized in sort of areas of what we would today call psychology. And he said these were basically the effect of the humors. That's still sticking around. But also brain. Your brain is what's driving this stuff. You have too much phlegm in your brain. And therefore, you aren't smart. I don't know. Okay. Any questions about any of this stuff before we wrap it up? Okay. First of all, we just went from about... 600 BC, when Romulus and Remus supposedly found Rome, to, well, I don't know, 1650. <laughs> That's a lot of history in an hour. It's the first thing. Um, part of the reason we can do that, because we're talking about intellectual history, is things move pretty slow. When we're into a very small slice of intellectual history. The church was really important, as you can see, but it became less and less important. And the, I think the, one of the biggest things that happens at this time is the rise of the European University. Right, so the, the European University starts, and we get the notion that we can have these centers of learning. All right? Okay. Right. So, stop. Pull up. And he sawed me right through He said he had enough love to satisfy two Now if you were me and you were two What would you do? Would you take twice the love or would you get up the glue? Remember the wagons when they pulled into town You could see the big top four miles around Among the carnival freaks he stood out like a clown And from his top hat he pulled a wedding gown Hey, hey, what you gonna do? You can't love me and another one too Hey, hey, what you gonna say? When the cat's away the rats are gonna play wand and with a flick of my wrist 
he was the last thing to disappear. Thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures at Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh uh, uh, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GAU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me, and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, if you want to call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music; they're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.